Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I discuss Wall Street corruption with Jed Rothstein, the director of The China Hustle. He shines a light on a pattern of fraud in publicly traded Chinese companies that ripple into the U.S. financial system. The film is paced like a thriller. Over 300 businesses operating in China listed here in the United States. Public traded stock. It was legit. But I believed they're misrepresenting and doing less business than they had claimed. So we went to China to monitor one of these companies. Roads in poor shape. Garbage rotting. A busload of investors shows up. All of a sudden, things get turned on. They leave. All the lights go back off. It's a $150 million company. It's a total fraud. If this one company is so brazenly fraudulent, we have to worry about all of them here in the United States. This is the largest financial crime of the last 25 years. We've never seen a credit buildup that hasn't been followed by a major financial crisis. Hold on to your wallet. The China hustle raises larger questions about our global economy, the lack of oversight, and the risks of a new economic crash. Jed has a 20-year career of producing television documentaries. He was Oscar-nominated for a short... This is his first theatrical feature. He had the backing of executive producers Alex Gibney and Frank Marshall. They've both been on Pure Nonfiction before. See our show notes for links to their episodes. A key figure in the China hustle is Dan David, who ran a small investment firm in Pennsylvania. After the 2008 market crash, Dan's company was looking for new areas to invest, They saw tremendous growth in Chinese companies on the U.S. stock exchange. In the film, Dan describes getting a warning sign that the growth might be fictitious. And this is the first time that we're actually hearing somebody's publishing a report and calling it fraud. We decided that we were either good at what we do or we were lucky. And if we were lucky... We were about to go out of business. So we hired our own team. And our own team went to China to vet some of these companies that were accused of fraud. In the film, we watch Dan switch from investing in these companies to becoming a short seller by betting on their failure. He becomes more and more critical of the banking industry. When you talk about the investment banks, especially the bigger ones, Fraud is baked in to the income statement. How many investment banks have had to pay fines this year for fraud? Wells Fargo? Check. Bank of America has in the past? Check. Morgan Stanley has in the past? Check. Nobody's gone to jail. It's a fine. So it becomes part part of what you budget. You budget for fraud. Last week, I hosted a screening of the China Hustle at New York's IFC Center, followed by a conversation with Jed before a live audience. I asked how he got started on this story. Well, I was really, uh, it was really two things. One was the sort of shock of learning that 
that this huge scandal had taken place just in the wake of, or be, it began just in the wake of the uh, mortgage security scandal in 2008, 2009. And the second was that it was Dan telling it to me, because Dan um, struck me as someone who was very different than a lot of people I had met in the uh, in the finance world, and that he had he wasn't just about the dollars and cents. He was he's as he says in the film, he's he's making money off it, and he's troubled by that, and he's he's honest about his own interest in this. But he also really does have this moral dimension, and he was really on a moral mission to uh, ferret out untruth and and that i thought was really attractive i you know especially as as we went on making the film and the political winds took the shape that they have taken i think we're all sort of bothered by being lied to and i i was attracted to dan's desire to to get at that problem so how did you even meet dan in the first place so a couple of the uh, one of the producers in particular sarah gibson had known dan uh, had known john carnes who's in the film two-thirds of the way in. A.K.A. Alfred Little. Al Alfred Little, that's right. Uh, she had known John from another film she did called IOUSA and uh, learned about this whole saga, got in touch with Dan, and then they brought the film to Jigsaw, hoping, I think, that Alex Gibney would direct it because Alex is famous for doing these great, um, you know, the Enron, Enron film and, yeah. and, and others. Um, and Alex really loved the story, but he couldn't direct it because he was like, committed to other things. And so they started asking around some other directors there, and I'd, I'd been working there on a number of projects. And they connected me with Dan, and it really just starts as it did in the movie. Dan and I met in Penn Station. and So it was really a personal route. It wasn't you'd read an article by one of the reporters that we see here it came from Dan? No, I learned. I didn't know anything about this when I met Dan. I mean, I knew a little bit about finance, but I didn't know anything about... Um, the problem with these companies coming from China. Well, what exactly is your background in, in finance? Um, I mean, I don't have a background in finance, certainly. I've, I've done a couple of projects now that focus on financial crimes and financial issues. But for me, it's really a question of learning about this story the same way I've learned about films I've done on um, al-Qaeda terrorists or um, people recovering from traumatic brain injury or... Uh, AIDS or the water system in, in Michigan. I try to, I think the whole point of being a filmmaker is not to necessarily be um, the master of every single thing. It's to understand it well enough to put it into a story so that we can all understand it better and, and learn from it and incorporate it into our thinking about how we want to make the world. To me, one of the great strengths of this film is its ability to explain complicated things uh, so that I can understand it. Um, and, uh, and and I wonder, compared to other projects you've uh, worked on, was this more complex in that respect? Yeah, it's, it's very complex. And the complexity um, is part of the opacity that allowed the frauds to take place. Because I think you know, it's so hard to understand all the different layers and all the different players, and that complexity is what allowed this gap of, of information to occur, and that sort of information arbitrage is at the heart of the scandal. So it was really hard to forge it into a story in an accurate way, and it was also hard. Finance can be difficult because there's not always a lot to see. You know, it's people talking on the phone, it's people sending emails, so there's not always physical action um, that you can put to it. And so we, we um, did a lot of work to try and figure out ways to, 
to show different elements of the story. So this story has been rolling out for many years, and we, uh, you know, see reporting going back to 2011, and you're filming a lot of this in in 2016. So there's been, you know, different waves of exposure of this, uh, and yet I think to many people watching this film, they're going to be encountering it for the first time. Where do you think we are in the in the storyline of of this being an issue? Well, the the first wave of companies that you see in the film are mostly gone. They were mostly shorted out of existence. These a lot of mint, um, coal companies, resource companies. Um, the there are still big problems that have to do with the increasing integration of our economies, of, of the global economy in general, and as specifically the U.S. and Chinese economies, and the continuing inability of regulators to, ke- to keep up with that. So now we have a 21st century capital flow and a 20th century regulatory framework. The companies that are now crossing borders are bigger and more complicated, and the exposure to them is greater, and there are certain indexes that, that fund managers, mutual fund managers rely on that now include China. So there's more exposure to companies doing business even over there where we, we again we don't have the tools to enforce transparency and, and accountability in, in a lot of cases so we're we're past this phase of these smaller resource companies where a short seller can go and say oh well they say they have a hundred trucks but we filmed them and they only have ten trucks or one truck or five trucks now we're into bigger multifaceted more complicated companies and it's harder to figure out what's even going on with them. Um, so we're into some new, some of the guys in the film will say that they're worried that our exposure is tremendous and there's, um, you know, big crashes coming. I don't know, not being, uh, you know, first of all, they don't know, nobody knows for sure. And I certainly wouldn't predict it, but I would say that our integration is greater and the, our ability to police it and do something about it hasn't really kept up with that. So one big name that we hear a lot about uh, is Alibaba. It you know gets mentioned in passing um, near the end of the film. Uh, what do you think this story has to say about that company? Well, it's um, it's you know it's it's the it's the prime example of what I was just talking about. It's a it's a big complex company. A lot of people have trouble understanding its books, understanding its accounting. Um, if you hold shares in Alibaba, you actually don't hold a share in the way that you hold a share of a company here. You hold a, a VIE contract, which is a contract that entitles you to some amount of their profits that's held in a, in a, uh, held by a company that I think in their case is based in the British Virgin Islands, but I could be wrong about the base. I could be wrong about the basis of that, but it's, it's, it's a complex financial structure that is subject to uh, a contract that can be broken. It's not the same way that it's a convert. It's not the same level of convertibility of a normal stock share. So these guys, again, are, are very concerned about that. I think the, the trade tensions that are ratcheting up um, don't augur well for cross-border cooperation. Um, but I wouldn't say that Alibaba is uh, a Potemkin company like some of these that we see in the film. That, that's not the case. Um, a couple of Jim Chanos, who's really the biggest short of any of these guys, had a long position 
against or a, a short position, a long-held short position, sorry, against Alibaba, um, and he gave it up, even though he didn't he didn't back off his thesis that they had enormous problems in their books, but he backed off his position because part of being part of the danger of shorting is that being right is only part of the game. You don't just because you're right doesn't mean you cash in on your bet. And I think you know they're an enormous company, um, and you know they that in and of itself, as as with some American companies that we see, that may uh, allow them to continue um, no matter what. The China hustle is filled with fascinating characters throughout the finance industry. Jed interviews Mitchell Nussbaum, an attorney who represents several companies that ran into trouble. In this sequence, Jed asks Nussbaum about a company called Orient Paper that was his client. Short sellers accused Orient Paper of making false claims of their productivity. Jed asks how much Nussbaum investigated his client to satisfy regulators. Forget about the lawyer, forget about the banker. The banker doesn't go into the books and records of the company. The lawyers don't go into the books and records of the companies. We, we don't go check to see whether the shipments were received. You know, we don't go visit the customers' homes. I mean, no law firm does this. No law firm does this. This is the part of the story where I had to do a double take. All of the people who we think of as gatekeepers, the lawyers, the bankers, the auditors, the people making good money to ensure that the markets are clean, weren't doing anything of the sort. They simply processed the necessary paperwork, took their fees, and moved on. If the companies were lying, so what? I asked Jed what it took to get this interview with Nussbaum. He, I think, wanted to talk about this area that he knows a lot about. Um, uh, and I think some some people, to some people, maybe he doesn't come off well, but to me, he does kind of come off well. He, he's really knowledgeable. Um, um, the only opinion that I give about him in the film is that he's a good lawyer. I think he is a good lawyer. I think if I were in, in need of this kind of legal help, I would probably turn to him. Um, and I think it's part of the situation, um, part of the, the complexity of this whole situation is you have all these players involved and you know, in hindsight, some of these things look like they were, would have been better not gotten into. But at the same time, when people get involved with them on the way up, they look like great opportunities. So, um, you know, to me, uh, Mitch is a, like many people in here, is a complicated character, but certainly somebody who had a lot of, of knowledge and, and insight into how this came together and what it meant. One of the most memorable interviews is with General Wesley Clark. He had a distinguished career in the Army, ran for president in 2004, and now works in the private sector. He was the CEO of the banking firm Rodman & Renshaw that rode the wave of investing in Chinese companies. Then Rodman & Renshaw came under criticism and eventually went bankrupt. Clark is now in his 70s. In the film, he grows increasingly uncomfortable during his interview. I don't think I want to be in the film. I think it's just, it, it invites attacks on me. And I don't need that. I'm trying to build a business. I don't want to be attacked. I didn't do anything wrong. It's like Monica Lewinsky. Forget about Monica Lewinsky. It doesn't matter what you say about it. It's a bad story. 
So let's let's just cancel this session, okay? I'm sorry I wasted your time. So uh, now I want to ask you about General Wesley Clark. Uh, it seems like something went wrong in the course of that interview for uh, for him. And I, I, yeah, I wonder if you can you know uh, elaborate on, on what he might have thought he was getting into, and at what point did he had a change of heart. I think he was hoping that he could talk about this whole area of business without talking about Rodman and Renshaw. And we kind of broached it a couple of times. Um, and then in the end, he kind of went on to this monologue about it. Um, and I, I feel very, I felt very conflicted about including him in the film because I, I admire General Clark and his service to the country is tremendous and certainly he's done much more for this country than I've ever done. Um, but I also feel like it is emblematic of a problem um, with the problematic companies and frauds that you see in the China hustle and just more generally in our financial world where people can sort of rent or lend their respectability and status to these deals that maybe are even legal as they're going on, but they're, they're not, um, they're not ideal and they're, they're, they allow capitalism to turn into something that's more of this taking advantage of other people and less of allocating resources, um, in an efficient way. And I think that, uh, he, as the chairman of that bank for several years was, uh, uh, a, a clearer example, or somebody that we could talk to in a way that made more sense than going to every one of the political celebrities who um, speak at these things where you're saying, well, is it really, are you demanding that they vet every single company at one of these conferences? That seems like a pretty high bar. But if you're the, actually the chairman, even if, as he claims, he didn't know what was going on, you're still s signing your name on the bottom of, of the bank sheets at the end of the day. Um, or... You're, you're attached to the entity in a more substantial way. Uh, we see in the film Dan David go to uh, Hong Kong, and uh, I'm curious to know, were you filming him on that trip, and to what extent were you doing other filming in China, and, and you know, what kind of, uh, what did that take to do? Well, we did, I did go and film with Dan on that trip. Dan was quite concerned that something might happen to him. It, it didn't, fortunately. Um, he... Um, put forward the short of that company tech pro in sort of live and in person, which is unusual. That's not usually how they go about it. So he was concerned about calling out the owner of that company. Um, we filmed with, uh, some other folks in China and most interestingly, uh, the guy you see sort of in shadow, who is a, um, a journalist for an official Chinese financial regulators, publication and he came over from the mainland and spoke with us and um he and and kun huang who's the man who went to jail for a couple of years are to me the most inspiring people in the film in a lot of ways because they're saying look china has china is a huge growing economy there is a lot of opportunity there there are a lot of great things going on and we want to help bring this kind of accountability into the markets here so that we have, so that we can be great contributors to the global economy, and and so that we can grow things ourselves here in China, and they took risks, and some of them continue to take risks to bring that out. Um, filming in China itself was more complicated, and we sent crews um, to 
film the different uh, locations that you see in aerials. And then, of course, some of the other footage that we have from inside China of the companies was taken by the shorts during the course of their investigations. Uh, Kun Huan in the film says something to the fact that you know that he believes good will ultimately triumph over evil, which seems like a remarkably optimistic thing to say in the face of everything we've just watched in this film. Yeah, I mean, he <clears throat> when I first met him, he had been not that long out of there, and he was, um, you know, shell shocked for lack of a better term. But I I do think that he. You know, it's just sort of a belief in in looking for truth and and looking to bring out a system that um, you know that makes sense, where there's rule of law and accountability. And I think that you have to. For me, that the story of this film is not about you know should we invest in China or shouldn't we invest in China. It's really this bigger systemic thing. Should we demand? a modern capitalist system that's based on fairness and can we extend that as much as as far as possible because capitalism is now a global system and it's guys like Kuhn uh, who have that belief that you know that can be done and that will be done and despite all the difficulties they face um, that will you know truth will out and and sort of the better angels of our nature will will come through um, that that's why to me he's very ins inspiring i think we need that kind of optimism in the in the face of everything that we're looking at nowadays uh, watching tonight i was thinking i wish i brought my brokers from morgan stanley uh to watch and uh get their take on it uh you told me that you've been showing it to uh to people in the financial world what are the feedback that you're getting um yeah they're <laughs> positive mostly and and afraid and and some criticism some people look at the some of the individual investors and say well why do they put all their eggs in that basket what kind of shenanigans were they doing and i think that that's a valid concern why would you certainly the financial advisors that was the first thing they all said i mean if anybody has a gone to a financial advisor the first thing they'll tell you is you know diversify um if somebody tells you there's a great deal in a small company in china you know <laughs> no um, i hope you've learned that yeah. much tonight um, I think there's some validity to that. Um, but I also think that it's, an, again, it's a, a sort of symptom of our, of our, the way that we've organized our society, which is people don't have retirement plans a lot of the time. And the way that we're encouraged to take care of ourselves as you know, I was just watching an ad the other day where there are all these elderly people doing jobs that they can't do, like holding a fire hose or, you know, being a DJ in a late night nightclub. And it's kind of in jest and it's funny, but it, it's sort of, it, you know, it, it's it brings forward this serious idea, which is, well, we don't have, we've decided as a society, we don't want to put in place the larger programmatic safety nets <clears throat> and we want everybody to just kind of go for it. And maybe that means when you're older, if you're going for it and you're in your 60s, you look at something like these companies in China and they're very attractive. Um, so I, again, to me, it's a question of how do we set up, how do we organize our, ourselves as a society around capitalism to make it better? I wanna thank Jed Rothstein for speaking with me 
His film, The China Hustle, is now playing in theaters and is available on iTunes and other VOD platforms. If you're in New York City, look out for our Stranger Than Fiction series. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with a filmmaker at New York's IFC Center. The spring season runs from April 17th to June 5th. Visit the Pure Nonfiction website for details. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah. And web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>